Welcome to All About Data on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jory Heckman. Thanks for joining me this week on All About Data, a conversation with chief data officers and the people who are making data work better in government. On today's episode, we've got a double feature. Later on, we'll talk about access to death data as a way to fight improper payments government-wide. But first, we've got an exit interview with Lynn Parker, who recently served as the Deputy U.S. Chief Technology Officer and Director of the White House's National AI Initiative Office. Dr. Parker, thanks for joining me. There's a lot to look back on, I'm sure, given your tenure in office here. Tell me, based on that perspective on things, how have you seen the federal workforce get more AI ready over the past few years? And what stands out to you as some of the biggest milestones or accomplishments on that front? Well, when you look back, I think the year when federal AI policy initiatives began in the United States was in 2016. And that was the year that the nation formalized its first national AI R&D strategic plan at the direction of White House OSTP. And at that time, that 2016 AI R&D strategic plan was one of the first AI policy strategies in the whole world. Then initiatives in 2019 kicked off a lot of federal and national activity in AI that have continued and accelerated to today. So today, if you were to go to the publication repository, and look up all the strategy documents from across the federal government, you'll find not only a variety of government-wide policy strategies on specific AI topics, but you'll also discover over 20 AI strategy documents from individual departments and agencies. You would also find dozens of agency-generated reports that cover all aspects of AI, such as how it can be used in important applications or how it can be harmful if not used responsibly. So, Importantly now, agencies are acting on these reports and they're implementing the ideas. And the bottom line is that the agencies have built up their capacity and prioritization of AI and its use in their agencies. And they put a lot of thought into how they can best use the technology to advance their missions and to think about how they uh, use AI responsibly to make sure that no harms are going to result from their use. So as they implement these ideas, they're making important and consistent progress in their responsible development and use of AI. So there's a fairly radical amount of additional work that has happened over the last small number of years. And I think just looking at this progress indicates how much advance has really happened across the federal government. We, of course, have heard a lot about the National AI Research Resource, or NAIR, and we're going to see a final report on that, I believe, in the fall in November. Just being a little forward-looking here, given your leadership of the NAIR, how do you see that being an important AI R&D resource for the federal government and the R&D efforts across the U.S.? A current challenge these days is that The pathways into AI research are too often accessible only by a limited few researchers. These are the researchers who have access to large-scale computational and data resources. Typically, that's large technology companies or well-resourced universities or national labs. So for the United States to sustain its leadership in AI R&D, it's essential that we enable the full and diverse talent of the nation to contribute to this AI innovation ecosystem. So by expanding and democratizing access to these resources, be they computational, 
or data or test beds and doing that through this national AI research resource, we can leverage and empower the entire AI R&D community from across the nation to explore these new ideas and innovations uh, that will benefit the American public. Okay. And of course, another key pillar of all of this is making sure that agencies have the right AI talent, that this is a pool of experts that are very much in demand across the private sector, the public sector, you name it. How can the federal government help diversify the pool of talent that researches AI and gets the best and brightest to work on this issue? It's not a new challenge, and it's a continuing challenge for the last many years. And it's something that needs a multi-pronged approach, an approach that helps build up our AI talent for the nation as a whole. So that would include the government, but it's also uh, academic and industry as well. As it relates to the federal government, there are a number of actions that are underway that I hope will help. For example, OPM is taking steps to establish or update an occupational series for AI. They will also be working on identifying rotational programs and how they can be used to expand the number of employees with AI expertise at the agencies. And so that's some beginning steps that are, are helping, they're ongoing, and, and I think that will help identify what the need is as well as provide mechanisms that can encourage people to join uh, the federal government in these areas. The GSA has also expanded the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program to establish an AI track. And that's to attract experts from industry and academia to a period of work within the federal government. That program has also been very successful in bringing in uh, tremendous experts into the agencies to help in many ways. But of course, this is a challenge for the nation as a whole. So to diversify the pool of AI researchers across the country, I've mentioned how the, the NAIR, the National AI Research Resource, is expected to have a beneficial impact by expanding the diversity of experts from across the country that are able to engage in AI R&D. And through that, we'll have the opportunity to learn about AI and become experts, even if they're not the deep experts that go on maybe to teach in these fields. I think it would also help for the nation as a whole if we modernized our K-12 curricula across the country to introduce students to concepts in AI and to spark their imagination. It's very much about helping people to understand how AI can be used to solve important challenges. And I think addressing those important challenges speaks to many young people today, and challenges include improving healthcare or discovering new approaches to clean energy or better predict and mitigate emerging pandemics or improving the quality of education, or making our cities and communities more sustainable, creating more resilient agriculture approaches. And there's just so many areas in which AI can help. And I think inspiring students with all of the positive potential of AI to address these tough challenges can do a better job of attracting more talent to enter and contribute to these fields. And then by having these pathways for learning about AI and then entering government or the workforce or going deeper into academia, I think can help build up this talent that we very much need across the nation. Of course, when we talk about AI, it's usually brought up in the context of, you know, this global space race, the near peer competition of staying on top of other nations that are also expending a ton of resources on this. How do you think the federal government is doing in terms of staying competitive globally when it comes to AI research and development? And what do you see as more steps being needed to stay on top of that competition? 
I think it's imperative as a nation that we continue to invest in long-term, cutting-edge, and multidisciplinary AI research. This would enable uh, new discoveries that advance not only the technical capabilities of AI itself, perhaps in a computer science setting, but also the transformational capacity of AI across all sectors of society. So this is about AI plus some discipline and how we can uh, advance progress in all of those uh, in all of those areas. So one way that I think we've made good progress in accomplishing this and increasing our competitiveness is through the development of the National AI Research Institute. So this is a program that's led by NSF together with a number of other partners. And this program has resulted so far in 18 new institutes across the country with researchers based in 40 states and the District of Columbia and total uh, up to date $360 million in investments. These investments are, I think, very good at advancing competitiveness because they bring together experts and students across many different disciplines to advance AI and to solve tough challenges, such as agricultural resilience or understanding weather or new materials discovery and so forth. One thing that we can do, I think, that would help even more people across the nation and would therefore help our national competitiveness is to form a network of these institutes and enable AI researchers from across the country to tap into that network to advance AI research and education. I think at the end of the day, the key determinant to global competitiveness, again, comes back to our people. We need to have talented, skilled people who dig into these fields and contribute with new ideas and innovations. So we very much, the competitiveness angle is very much tied to our education and workforce training needs. We need to reinvigorate our investments in AI education so that we can build up the next generation of AI researchers, especially those who want to stay in academia to teach and mentor the next cohort of experts in the field. Because right now, many of our AI experts are leading academia for industry, and that's great for our uh, industrial competitiveness, but we also need to provide enhanced research opportunities for those in academia so that it will continue to be an attractive career path for experts in the field. That, I think, is very critical, that we expand and build up our AI competence and expertise across the country so that everyone has opportunities to thrive in these AI-enabled jobs of the future. And I think by having that talent, we will have people working in a field that will therefore advance our global competitiveness. So I think all of those things go together. Of course, one element of the National AI Intelligence Initiative Act is a national AI strategy coming together. How close are we to that national strategy? And what's the timeline like on that? Well, the National AI Initiative Act calls for a regularly updated National AI R&D Strategic Plan. So since 2016, we've had that strategy in place. In fact, I had the honor of co-chairing the task force that created that first National AI R&D Strategic Plan in 2016 and also oversaw the update of that strategy in 2019. And we're working now on the third update to that strategy, which will be out at the end of this calendar year. And that's on pace for what the legislation calls for, which is an update every three years. That was Lynn Parker, who recently served as the Deputy U.S. Chief Technology Officer and Director of the White House's National AI Initiative Office. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, we'll talk about how access to death data can fight improper payments in government. I'm Jory Heckman, and you're listening to All About Data on Federal News Network.
Welcome back to All About Data. In this segment, we're diving into the National Academy of Public Administration's report to Congress on using death data as a way to fight improper payments. Here to talk about it is president of the Data Foundation and Napa Fellow, Nick Hart. Nick, thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be here. A lot to get into here. I think a lot of people's experience with the Social Security Administration and its work with death data that it gathers from states has been recently with the COVID-19 pandemic relief funds and some of the headlines that have resulted from that. But can you give me a better sense of how this death data is essential for federal agencies to mitigate that fraud and improper payments? Every year, there are several million deaths in the United States. And this is really critical knowledge for our government. And actually, not even just government, but private sector. State and local vital record organizations are actually the primary collectors of this information. They're the repositories of the knowledge. For most of the American public, our actual exposure to this information is actually if you need to obtain a death certificate, let's say, for a loved one for purposes of verifying the death. But the data are actually really critical. And it's because there are a lot of programs and a a lot of activities that really change when someone is deceased. So, okay, how do we know when someone's no longer alive? Well, it turns out sometimes it's actually really hard to know. And that information comes in from lots of different places, but at its core, typically state and local jurisdictions or vital record organizations are really where uh, we rely on. Uh, the originating collection of the information. So the Social Security Administration is essentially a collector on behalf of much of the federal government. And they're, they're collaborating through these intergovernmental partnerships to ensure that for the federal government and for federal benefits, we have access to that information. And this is really important for the purposes of reducing fraud, or is a term we like to use, improper payments. And if you're an American taxpayer, we want to try to minimize those improper payments to the extent possible. So when someone is no longer eligible for benefits, we have a way of matching the information about the deceased individual to the benefit paying organization as quickly as possible so that we can calibrate the the estimates and the, the data to the payments that are going out. This is really hard to do in practice. And I I think we want to be really honest about that because sometimes there are lags. Sometimes we just, we don't know that someone is deceased instantaneously. The data systems are sometimes challenged by, by time and history. Sometimes this information is based on paper until it's transferred into the digital system. There's interagency cooperation, intergovernmental cooperation. There's cost implications. There's issues around transparency. So all of these are considerations that ultimately, not just SSA, but the whole of government and all states and the local jurisdictions that have to collaborate here are really challenged in tackling. But this is why this is such a wicked and complicated issue to deal with. And at the end of the day, it's really important to get right. It has huge implications for the costs of government, but also just to the American people. I mean, knowing when you're going through that the death of a loved one, it's just a difficult time. So the onus is really on, on government to both make this a, frankly, painless process of getting these benefit payments calibrated quickly and efficiently, but also getting it right and accurate to the extent that we can. Of course, you highlight one element of this that is really important, which is that this is a very valuable data set, but a 
pretty closely guarded data set. And up until recently, SSA has kind of been the sole distributor of this information, at least federally. One notable exception to that is the Treasury Department's Do Not Pay program in fiscal 2023 will have some access to this data. Can you give me a better understanding of how functionally that will work and what that will do for improper payments? Your question actually gets to the heart of why the National Academy of Public Administration was tasked by Congress with looking at the death data and the different options for how we can explore sharing the data across the the federal infrastructure and potentially making some improvements over time. What are the options for making the system more transparent, addressing cost implications? There's a lot of room for potential improvements. And I I think the study panel really delved into this, but also acknowledged a lot of the the challenges that really do exist at, at a practical level. The reality is there are 10 federal agencies that currently receive some death data via SSA. And there are others that receive some limited form of data. And there's this version of the information called the death master file, uh, which sounds really ominous, right? Like it's it's this way of characterizing a, a limited, not full or massive, complete documentation of everything that SSA has. But some version of this is actually available as a public use file. So through the Department of Commerce, NCIS, companies that have a need can actually acquire versions of the DMF, the death master file. So for example, the financial services sector can acquire, and there's some benefits to those in the private sector using this information as well. But it is not the version that has everything about Nick Hart that the Social Security Administration has. So this is a long way to say that there are really important privacy and confidentiality safeguards that are embedded in this process as well. You've brought into the discussion uh, other federal agencies like the Department of Treasury and the Do Not Pay portal. And this has been a discussion for years about who else might be not just a user, but also a potential collector of the information. And in fact, Do Not Pay was one of the options that was considered by the study panel and presented with a pretty thorough discussion about what the implications of that might be. And some might suggest and have suggested through the years, DNP, Do Not Pay, is actually a really practical place to go if you wanted to access information like this. But there are also limitations of making Do Not Pay the repository. And the reason being because there are cost implications on the states about how the information might be shared across the entire federal apparatus. So if you're a state and you rely on fees from the federal government or from SSA as as a way of covering the costs of the system and, and sharing the data, that has huge implications for you. And so the real kind of limitation in that is how do you compensate for the data? What what should the level of compensation back to the data collectors be? And this is a really important conversation to be had. This will have to be a conversation in the years ahead from the federal government if we're going to rely on state and local jurisdictions to do the data collection. There's also important conversations to be had about how then you ensure high quality data as part of this. So do not pay potentially an option. We can't dismiss it. And in fact, the NAPA panel very clearly presents that as an option. And and it's important to note that the authority for do not pay is temporary. Congress, uh, when it authorized it back in 2020 as part of the fiscal year 21 Consolidated Appropriations Act, only provided three years of access. And it's safe to assume that during that three-year period, there will be a conversation about whether this continues, whether there's an alternative strategy we should really be looking at. Should SSA retain the authority as it currently exists? Is do not pay the right place? Do we look at one of the other options that the NAPA panel presented, such as 
using uh, an independent third party consolidator, for example. Actually, to take a half step back here, it seems to me that Congress wouldn't ask for such a report if the current way of distributing this death data was working fantastically well. And so can we maybe unpack some of the ways in which there are maybe some shortcomings or some cons to the current way under SSA that data is being distributed to federal agencies? Yeah. So, I mean, you you just really acknowledged one of, I think, the key challenges in, in this whole conversation, which is the perspective matters for who you ask this question to. If we were having someone from SSA in this conversation, I think you you get a couple of key responses. One is the collection and dissemination of death data a core mission responsibility for the Social Security Administration. And over the years, there have been very clear responses that suggest there are concerns about whether, in fact, this is SSA's responsibility. Many suggest that, yes, they do need to have the knowledge of death. And, and this is consistent with other benefit paying programs about who is deceased for the purposes of improper payment. But is it SSA's responsibility to then disseminate that information to other benefit paying agencies? And SSA might say, that's not our responsibility to provide a whole of government service. So then if not SSA's responsibility, whose responsibility is it? Now in many parts of the federal government, we have an agency that serves as a government-wide service provider. For example, there is a agency that is tasked with providing a service to the whole of government for payroll, for other government-wide functions that we see in the management side. There are some agencies that take on those responsibilities, sometimes administratively, sometimes designated by Congress. So this can be a policy choice. It's a question that policymakers have to decide. That was Nick Hart, president of the Data Foundation and a Napa fellow. I'm Jory Heckman, and thanks for listening to this episode of All About Data. Thanks for listening to All About Data on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your favorite podcast app. Search for All About Data on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. We'll be right back.